0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. This is the Big Apple. There are 8 million stories here. This is Wall Street. There's only one story here. Read. Wall Street is a man's world.
0: Fifty thousand for blowing him, and all I had to do was moan
1: and be excited. Let's go. Liddy? All well. Cocksuckers. Wall Street is where the action is rough. Look, I'm demolished. (laughs) Wall Street is where fortunes are made and lost. Overnight. Boom, boom, boom. From Tyler one day to a dummy corporation the next. No. This is not the time to panic. Look
0: out, guys. Panic in the street.
1: This is Wanda.
0: Ah, oh. uh, the new girl. Oh, the new woman. Oh. Oh. The new girl. Slightly shady.
1: She wants part of the action.
0: Oh, a spade a spade. Art, right. I stole Wanko.
1: She'll do anything to get ahead.
0: I don't think your wife would be too pleased to know that the new girl in the New York office has been munching your cock. You know, I've been looking for a handsome stud like you. You
2: have?
1: Wanda whips Wall Street. Wanda's world is sex.
0: If I don't give you a blowjob... Right now, I think
1: I'm Ah.
3: Ah. going to die. It's fast.
1: And sex. world is opulence and sex. Monica Hart.
0: Wanda, I oh, can feel my tongue right down the crack of your ass.
1: Oh, a Wanda, whips. Wall Street.
4: We did it. A film by Larry Rabin,
1: a Platinum Pictures release.
4: Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is the hostess with the is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back in the booth this week is Mister Kevin Heffernan. Good morning, folks. This week, we are discussing Larry Ravine's Wanda Whips Wall Street. Released in 1981, the film stars Jane Hamilton, a.k.a. Veronica Hart, as Wanda Brandt, a tough businesswoman who comes to Wall Street to ply her feminine wiles and business acumen in order to take over the company for which she works. She has a head for business and a bod for sin. Is there anything wrong with that? Kevin, when was the first time that you saw Wanda Whips Wall Street, and what did you think?
3: I first saw the trailer in our local adult movie theater a few weeks before the film came out. That would be a fall of 1981 and the, the trailer looked great, uh, but I didn't really see the movie until the art theater that I was managing put it in as a midnight booking. We had the Thursday night X-rated films as you know, part of our programming. And I just thought it was great. It was funny. Uh, it moved really, really quickly. And of course, uh, Jane Hamilton, uh Veronica, Hart gives a stellar performance which I'm sure we'll discuss in great detail.
4: And how about you, Heather?
5: I first saw the trailer for it before I ever saw the movie and I believe it was through a comp called Smut Palace Insanity which is a Yes. Really, really great uh, trailer compilation. But I didn't see the movie until Distripix uh, did their special edition release of it, where they remastered it um, beautifully so. You know, I thought it was very cute. Of course, Veronica Hart is, you know, she she's one of the biggest stars from that era for a very good reason. And she shines bright as she always does uh, in the film. And I thought uh, I especially loved Tish Ambrose as well.
4: This is yet another movie that I am checking out for the first time this year. I uh, bought the DVD or the Blu-ray, sorry, when it came out through DistroPix, and uh, yeah, I I held on to it for a long time and then uh, was talking to uh, Larry Ravine. Actually, he's been on the show a few times, and he lists this as one of his favorites so I was like "All right, gotta check this thing out and it definitely did not disappoint and I figured you know with uh, the swamp taking over the White House I figured it uh, made a lot of sense to talk about uh, a movie where they're kind of skewering Reaganomics and uh, it almost seems like the good guys are gonna win when it comes to this.
3: Yes we'll talk about the ending I'm sure.
4: Yeah definitely there are spoilers on this episode so if you haven't seen Wanda Whips Wall Street and you uh, don't want to have anything ruined, uh, turn this thing off and then come on back after you watch the movie. You will not regret seeing this one.
3: And that's not a joke, folks. Golden Age adult films really do have incredibly well-thought-out plots with actual reversals and recognitions and stuff that they teach you about when you take screenwriting courses in college.
4: And I was surprised that just... How little sex there is in this movie. Of course, it is used. I, I always compare good adult cinema to good Chopsaki cinema, where you know you've got fight scenes in certain places, and they move along the plot. And in good adult cinema, you have good sex scenes, and they move along the plot. And there's so much of the sex in here being used to help Wanda. She uses uh, sex as a way to. Uh, work her way up through this company, this Tyler security and brokerage incorporated in order to secure all of these stocks. And like I said in the intro, she's, you know, using her beauty, using her sex appeal in order to kind of blackmail these guys that are working with her into signing over their their shares you know she uh will usually sleep with these guys and then and sleep with as a euphemism she'll she'll have sex with these guys or or get blowjobs and then say oh uh, are you married oh wouldn't it be terrible if your wife found out about this why don't you just sign over all these shares to me and we'll just forget the whole thing
3: and they even work a couple of variations on that stinger at the end of the scene
5: I love your comparison to Chop sake Cinema. That's, <laughs> I never would have thought of using that metaphorically. Now, the, the thing that's interesting with this film, and to give a little background for the listeners, is the, the film opens up when we see our titular Wanda leaving Altoona and her company of Wanko, or Wonko. Wanko sounds better. Also, Kevin, I don't know if you agree with me as a fellow Southerner. I feel like we're, Southerners more inclined, we're more to say like, you know, like an eh. Like it's a Wanko. You know? Yeah, definitely. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, you know she's the top of the the food chain in altoona but now she's ready to go to new york and you know be the be the big fish in the big pond now but then it immediately leads into like her interview at tyler and she and it goes into a sex scene pretty quickly which kind of sets you up to think initially like okay like if you're somebody not familiar with classic adult uh like, I, like you know, like all three of us, you know, at this point, you're going to be like, oh, it's going to be one of those. It's going to be a sex scene every five minutes. It's going to be cheesy. But then the sex ends up kind of quickly and it's kind of like it's comedic. It's not really done for erotic effect. That's just one of the many cool things about this film is there's certain directions you think it's going to take you in as an adult film. But yet it doesn't really.
4: It almost cuts from her uh, massaging her breasts. I mean, there's such little sex to to her, you know, to that cut of her on the phone with, and how would you describe this guy? Is this like her uh, investment broker or or how would you describe this character who kind of sets up this shell corporation for her in order to uh, do what she needs to do and, and put all the stocks into one area and, and make sure that nobody kind of trace it back
3: to her. A financial (laughs) planner, a stockbroker, screenwriting manuals uh, would call him a confidant that helps us uh, get all kinds of exposition in. But that's, not a nice
5: thing to say. Your notes are so much smarter than mine. I think I have the word mook in mine. <laughs> like it was just, he was just—he was just sort of like a glorious. I mean, he—he he literally calls her "toots."
4: I was surprised that he called her "toots." I was like, I wouldn't think that she would associate with somebody that would call her "toots," but okay.
3: Especially when "toots" is used later in the film by Ron Hood as that—that uh, that, uh, loft party Lothario.
5: Yeah, we'll we'll get to Captain Mustache here in a little bit. (laughs) So we have Wanda, and she's quickly already kind of like, you know, establishing her ground at Tyler. And then we have Tish Ambrose come back. We see Tish at the very beginning, and Tish plays uh, Wanda's secretary.
3: This is what's going to trip us up throughout the whole thing. Uh, Tish Ambrose's character is called Janie, so we can't refer to... Uh, Veronica as Jane, or it will be incomprehensible.
5: But no, but Janie, you know, she yeah, she's missing her boss and her friend, and comes to the big city. Quickly becomes like I believe Mike, you have in the script, her girl Friday, which is like such a perfect descriptor of her of her character. She's totally a girl Friday, and these two, I don't know what you, what you guys think. I totally got like almost like a. A weird, like, late-30s screwball comedy vibe with Wanda and Janie as characters. They have this dynamic that's so just charming and cute, and it never turns sexual. And, th- and that's another twist in adult film. Usually when you have two girls who are friends in adult films, the audience is going to expect them to have a total girl scene, you know, where it's like, oh, you look so tense, you
3: know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and the, the third character, uh, Lisa Rogers, played by Samantha Fox, uh, she doesn't have sex with either of them. Either Jane or Wanda.
4: I'm trying to remember if there is a girl-on-girl scene in the film.
5: I don't think there is. I rewatched it last night, and I don't remember any. Yeah, there. The, uh, yes, Charlotte. Adult films do exist without girl-girl that are gay porn.
4: <laughs> I mean, it is distinctly hetero, if memory serves.
3: There's a the heter- double blowjob with uh, Tish Ambrose and uh, Sharon Mitchell uh, on the if the party guest, but that's just almost implied that the two women are are
5: yeah because right you really on. see yeah
4: and for a little while i thought there would be a um homoerotic scene with the one coworker of hers who is definitely not interested in her sexually i was like oh well she's gonna have to get something else going on here to uh get this guy to sign over his stocks
3: yes yeah, so hartman callison played by a kurt Mann. he Appears in a number of the uh, Chuck Vincent, Larry Ravine, Amaro Brothers, Ron Sullivan movies. And I know in Blonde Ambition, he has a non-sex role as the gay lover of one of the characters that Susie Mandel uh, seduces. So, yes, I think he eased into those kinds
5: of roles oh he's amazing and blonde ambition I, I, when I saw Kurt Mann's name in the, the credits when I first watched this I was clapping I was like yes I love him and he's and he's great here but I wonder too yeah because there's some cute kind of interplay when she first meets him and her boss who she's just had sex with introduces them and he says something to the boss about oh my jaw down there is stuck
0: congratulations my dear I uh almost envy you uh, Winston, would you mind stepping over here for a minute? My uh, drawers are stuck. Humid weather, you know.
5: Ugh. It Doesn't he kind of wink? Is there like yes. a little wake? It's like, like, whoa, hey now, what's going on here? <laughs> I was a little disappointed we didn't get uh, any follow up with that. But it's always I'm always happy to see Kurt, man. He's definitely, you know, that that's always the beauty of seeing anything that's like Larry or the Amero brothers or Chuck Vincent is you're always going to have non-sex actors who are just, you know, great character actors that stand out and just kind of flesh out the film in a non-fleshy way.
3: Well, even the uh, the cleaning lady appears in a number of the uh, of the Chuck Vincent films. And to have her come in in the background when Wanda is trying to Uh, get something out of a desk. And instead of just having her walk by with the the rolling cart, we have her singing a lead belly song, uh, which is just a wonderful little comic
4: touch. I was really glad to see the actor. um, I think he goes by the name uh, Carter Tweesdale in this one. um, Boomer Tibbs, who uh, actually I talked about him in the working girls episode, the uh, Lizzie Borden film. He's one of the clients in there. And he is he's just amazing. I always love to see him. He's got such an amazing face. And I'm glad that he gets in on the action as well, because he doesn't look like a quote-unquote typical porn actor, because he's kind of a goofy-looking dude, but I love him.
3: Chuck's films frequently had these unlikely sexual performers in them. I think it's one of the reasons that they were so distinctive and so friendly and welcoming. So we're talking about Chuck Vincent. Mike, can you tell us who Chuck Vincent was? I've been talking about him as if everyone, uh, you know, went to his birthday party recently.
5: They should have if they did it. That's shame on you, people.
4: <laughs> well, Chuck unfortunately wouldn't have been there, but yeah, uh, Chuck Vincent he had a very interesting career. I actually read about him before I saw any of his films. One of my writers and cashiers to cinema right, wrote, a, wrote a whole article about uh, his early non-porn films and uh, just kind of like yeah, some. Innocent, fun type of movies, but he was terrific. He was pretty much a uh, porn auteur and uh well just an tour in general and he was the one who directed cleo leo which we talked about i think that was just last year one of the uh least downloaded episodes of the protection booth and it really should uh, get some more love as should that film but i think that was one of those awkward movies that seems like it should be a porn film but it really isn't so uh, i think people were kind of disappointed that it didn't have more sex to it
5: no chuck vincent um uh- definitely i think the more the more love that man can get the better i mean he's often credited There were a handful of directors that were really viewed as like, if anybody's going to bring adult into the mainstream and have it fully critically respected, Chuck Vincent was one of the big dogs in that race. You know, it was him, Damiano, the sadly late Radley Metzger, a.k.a. Henry Paris, um, as well as, uh, I would say, Cecil Howard and Henry Pichard. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?
5: ChumbaCasino.com. Jumba. No prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, oh, yeah, Spinelli, absolutely. I'm so glad, Mike, you, you mentioned his R rated work because, yeah, there's, there's some gems in there too. I definitely recommend Sex Appeal, which was his R rated remake of Fascination, I believe, and, uh, which has Jeffrey Hurst in it, aka Jeff Eagle. It's, and he's um, hilarious.
4: So yeah, Wanda and, uh, her girl Friday, they kind of tear through, uh, so many of these execs and are looking pretty good as far as getting enough stocks to, to take over this company, uh, until, uh, the, uh, the company hires some investigators, and I love the introduction of these investigators, <laughs> both via dialogue, talking about them, and then when they actually uh, introduce these characters of Ed Drummond, played by Ron Jeremy, and Lou Perini, played by the uh, the wonderful, wonderful Jamie Gillis. And uh just, yeah, their introduction where they're having sex on a boat with uh these women out in the harbor of New York is just uh, terrific. I mean, these guys are in their prime when it comes to this, to, to the point where you're just like, oh, my God, is that Ron Jeremy? Like the first time you saw him, because you forget just how handsome and striking this guy was when he was younger, because now, you know, of course, you know, he's still with us. Thank goodness. But, you know, he, it's he's older and he's put on a couple pounds, but back then man he just he was rock hard he was just awesome to look at and he's such a great actor i love him and i love jamie gillis
3: i've hired a special securities investigator it's possible even quite likely that the culprit or culprits are working within the firm there's only one man that can stop them vesco liddy falwell No, I'm talking about the world's foremost safe cracker. I mean, crackpot. Hell, Lou Perini. Absolutely. Positively.
4: He's the only choice.
0: I like that Perini.
4: Ditto.
3: Ron Jeremy really carries a lot of the comedy in this film that's not uh, done by Veronica Hart in his interaction with both the Jamie Gillis character, Lou, and in his interaction with Jamie, the Tish Ambrose character. There are entire scenes that in another actor's hand would be there just to move the plot forward. And he always turns these scenes into compelling bits of either pantomime or verbal comedy. He's really extraordinary here.
5: Oh, absolutely. I mean, Ron, Ron Jeremy, even if uh, one is not a fan of his uh, his sexual performance, you know, his comedy, but also his, you know, dramatic, uh, you know, abilities, too, are so great. Um, I know, I know, Mike, you and I have talked about this before, with I believe, was it the Spoker episode? Ron Jeremy really doesn't get enough credit for being kind of uh, a multi-talented kind of guy. It's, it's actually, I think it's a shame, even though it's given him probably more fame and more money. Than some of his his peers from this era. I mean, you know, he's much more than the hedgehog. Yeah, you know him. I thought him and Tish Ambrose here, especially as those two characters get dinner, it's more they were very funny and cute together. And Annette, no, no, he's great. And of course, Jamie. Yeah, you know, my one of my favorite scenes in this movie was like when Jamie, you know, Alan Anderson's character, who was Boomer Tibbs, that was his character. Alan Anderson has just passed, and they take Jamie Lou Perini. You know, and Rod Jeremy, who's his uh, assistant to this room, and
3: he was a fine, fine man. Just recently passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. I tell you, we'll set up, set up you and Ned at in here, uh, if you don't mind. Some people get a little spooked by that sort of thing. Oh, I, I thrive on it. <laughs> Good.
5: I literally hand clapped, and I was like, yes. That's Jamie. You know, there's, there's certain things that, that Jamie Gillis could just nail in a look or a phrasing, you know? And it's like, Oh, that's the man right there. Oh
3: yeah. <laughs> Less is more
4: with Jamie. He was extraordinary. As the movie progressed, somebody mentioned that it feels like a screwball comedy. And I totally agree with it. As the movie was progressing, and the relationship between Veronica Hart's character and uh, the Jamie Gillis character kind of blossom, as well as that other relationship that Rod Jeremy is having. I, for some reason, was reminded a lot of a Rock Hudson Doors Day type of comedy, especially like with Gillis as Rock Hudson and, and Veronica as Doors Day, and then Rod Jeremy almost as the Tony Randall, you know, especially... During that end sequence when they're off together when Jamie and and Jane or Veronica and Jamie Gillis are off together and then uh, and Ron Jeremy's back in the office kind of digging up who's behind this uh, this front company. It totally reminds me of like Tony Randall finding out the truth about Rock Hudson, and, or that he's you know he's the one who's been going out with Doris Day, who's the one that Tony Randall really wants to go out with, and then rushing up to the the country house to kind of explode their relationship. I don't know. I, I'm sure that I'm probably the only one that's going to compare this to Pillow Talk, but that that's <laughs> that's where I was coming from with it because it has that classic vibe to it. It just it uses these tropes that we've seen in such a good way. And again, like we were saying before, the sex is very hot, but the sex is very secondary to the plot. And it is used to just kind of move these things along.
5: That's an extremely apt comparison, Mike. Um, it's, and especially tonally too, because this film, if one wanted to get darker with the subject matter, one could, because I mean, if you really think about the implication that, you know, this is a world where, you know, a, a cunning, intelligent, bright woman, basically for her to kind of get the most efficient, you know, means of getting ahead. She has to fuck these guys and blackmail them. You know, if you really think about that, that's depressing. That's not, you know, you wouldn't... But the way that the cast handles it, the way that Larry handles it as a director, it's, it's like a... You know, it's like a like a bonbon or something. It's very, it's like a yeah, you know, little pastry or something. It's very light. It's very fun. Any any chance for darkness? You know, they don't really go there, which is probably other than the twist ending, which we'll we'll get to in a little bit. But for the most part, you know, it's um, no, it totally has that vibe of those of the you because know, Pillow Talks a light film. Though that era had so many just light pastry type comedies.
3: I think one of the most apt comparisons between uh, this film and some of those fifties comedies is we have this gallery of of masculine grotesques in here, these these utter abject specimens of innervated, uh useless men, weak, stupid, easily led. That's something we see in a lot of the fifties comedies in the Frank Tashlin films, for example, and in some of the um you mentioned Pillow Talk, the the Nick Adams character in that is is uh, or the Doris Day's boss, played by the guy who later played Dr. Bellows on I Dream of Genie, uh, the antique dealer, played by Marcel Dalio. These are all these Fay loser guys against which um, the Rock Hudson character is going to be seen uh, more favorably. And I think these character actors, the non sex character actors in this film, particularly the men, are really, really great at bringing out the, the comic potential of these people who have a tremendous amount of money and a tremendous amount of power and they have absolutely no talent, no smarts, no charisma at all.
5: You know, that's one of the things that makes this film, you know, a cut above. I think is that it's, you know, there, it is, it does have a brain to it. One of my few complaints about Wanda whips Wall Street was maybe there are times where I almost wished it was a little bit longer because I felt like there was there are moments and characters that could have been fleshed out more. But, you know, my feeling is if you watch a film and you wish it was longer, then that's not a real negative. A real negative is when you're like, Jesus, is this ever going to end? <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah. Uh- I was really hoping to see a subplot with uh, the character of Lillian, played by Patricia Dale, the uh, woman in the office with the yellow glasses, who says to her when she comes in...
0: Oh, the new woman. Well, don't expect any breaks around here, my dear. Not
4: from me, at any rate.
3: (laughs) I was waiting for some kind of confrontation between... Uh, her character and Veronica's character, Wanda, it seemed like that was a potential mine of comic gold that they just left unexplored. But I totally agree with you that this film does leave us wanting more, including a different ending.
5: Personally, the film really picked up with the party scene. Um yes. And, you know, of course, I I think we we have to mention the bizarre comedy of how that scene gets started, because Veronica Hart gets into Wall Street, which I believe was that shot at the actual Wall Street Stock Exchange building. But she sneaks in by basically seducing it like this very nerd, nerdly guy, and gets him to close his eyes and dirty talks while she puts on his clothes. (laughs) And and passes by security. Security, I guess, back in the uh back then was definitely not what it is now because you have this beautiful woman in glasses. I mean, Veronica Hart is one of the most stunning women you know, in film, not just adults. She's gorgeous. And but definitely. you know, she's got glasses on and a big coat and he's like, Okay, thank you, sir, like <laughs> <laughs> she and she goes in and makes a bunch of deals, but then like that's how you meet the Samantha Fox character, who I would Samantha Fox again is one of those actresses. You know, when you see her pop up in these films, you're like, oh, okay, good, life is good because she's great. And then we get to the party, and the party scene. Oh, how I love for me the film when when that party scene happened, I was like, oh, okay, now we're now we're really cooking because you have yep. like this great editing and these weird just all of these weird interstitial characters and these Bon mots, Like, yeah, you know, you, I mean, the phrase weasel pelts is in there. I mean, it, it, it actually, it kind of reminded me a lot of the, uh when you first see Z-Man and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Russ Absolutely. Times. Like, you know, when you go to Z-Man's party and you just see all these great kooky characters and just all of these great one-liners, it, it totally has that vibe with some fantastic color gel lighting. I mean, the lighting actually reminded me of a Cecil Howard film. It was like, this is yes. particularly like Firestorm and, and some parts of Scoundrels, but uh, but the party scene, oh my God, that's so good.
3: Well, you mentioned Weasel Pelts and Z-Man, so I can get rid of a page or so of my notes here.
5: You know, we're in a good business when we have notes that literally say Weasel Pelts and Z-Man. That's a
3: <laughs> Weasel Pelts is highlighted in, in green here on my... what do you do for a living
0: i made my fortune in weasel
3: pelts later the party scene is one of the scenes i think where the where the movie doesn't let us forget that we're looking at comedy and satire that's a thing where where the tone of the film the comic tone and its distance and its contempt for the world that it's portraying really kind of gels in a in a really great way. There's no one there at that party who is anything other than a completely despicable person. It's really quite remarkable. I think the dollar's gonna dip. You're a dip. Yeah, it's
4: really capturing those uh, those 80s uh, slime buckets at the, uh,
3: the just the opening of the 80s. Of course, they're models of probity and integrity compared to what we have now. But, you know, back then, I guess it was a subject for satire.
5: The complete shark pit of that party and just – but again, another testament to Larry. I mean, God, I love Larry Ravine. It's just like – it's light, though. You know I mean? It's, again, another thing where you could really make it something really dark and cynical and ugly. But yet it's it's still fun and funny. This is where you have, for any of you classic adult film fans out there like ourselves, this is – you get to see Sharon Mitchell pop up with – it's like, oh my God, it's Sharon Mitchell! Yay, and uh, and George Payne, who I'm always happy to see, and his scene with Samantha Fox was great for me on two levels. One, I love how she literally is like fanning herself with the with <laughs> the fan while he's while he's attending to her needs. But then there's some great close-up shots of him, and George is such an intense actor and performer that it's like. To be, I know this wasn't any attention, but, and, but I'm just weird enough where I like stuff like this and I like contrast at times where he looks, he looks like, I'm like, Oh my God, he's going to kill her or something. Cause he yes. looks, he's got that great, just George Payne. I mean, nobody does intensity quite like George Payne. I mean, he's just great. And the lighting, again, the lighting and all of that. And then you have the aforementioned Ron Hudd. I'm like, what broker firm? I mean, he obviously got there with his girlfriend. I'm like, that dude just. I mean, this guy's supposed to work at a, <laughs> you know, right. work at a stock exchange. I, I mean,
3: he's got platonic ideal of what people think of the of late '70s, early '80s, uh, male porn performer. He's wearing the aviator shades. He's got an acetate shirt. He's got the molestache, as you as you mentioned earlier, and he's just kind of walking around like, you know, his dick is leading him, you know, from one room to another. And he's really, really good in these little walk-on roles. I've seen him in a, a bunch of the, uh, uh, the the Cecil Howard, Ron Sullivan films. And he's actually in uh, Deep Inside Annie Sprinkle, which kind of surprised me. You know, I just sort of imagined him as this sort of, in real life, sort of the sullen garage mechanic, hung like a horse, you know, porno stud, and in the commentary on the DVD, which I got to tell everybody to run out and get the, the district picks, Blu-ray, it's really astonishing. Larry and Veronica Hart mention that in real life, he was an incredibly accomplished metal sculptor who did these industrial installations. And there's a really, really talented and ambitious and hardworking artist who works under the name Jim Messina. And he's still active. He's just one of these guys that, you know, we have this vision of what these performers were like in real life based on our sort of retroactive, faux sophisticated, campy contempt for some aspects of, you know, classic adult. Uh, and then there's the anti-sex worker bias that many of us have where we imagine that, you know, if these people, you know, didn't have genitalia that function at the drop of a hat. You know, they wouldn't have any other you know means of supporting themselves, all that all that negative stuff that people say. About adult performers and to find that he was uh, and still is this incredibly intelligent, sensitive, accomplished artist is really just one of the many delights to be found in uh, uh, in Veronica and Larry's commentary on the film on the DVD.
5: I think the thing that's a joy about investigating films like this and, you know, we're so lucky to live in an age where we have shows like this, you know, and, and the work that you do, Mike and, and Kevin. And also, you know, definitely like shows like the Rialto Report where people are realizing, I think, more and more that a lot of the the artists that made these films are like the a lot of the films themselves, which is, you know, means people kind of make assumptions just from like the superficial, but then if they investigate it, or even just take a little bit of their time to watch some of these films or learn about some of these personalities, they they realize. Well,
4: Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps—you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, with daily bonuses. That should brighten your
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and
5: conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, of course. There's more than meets the eye. It's like I've always said. Picasso, you know, Picasso had explicit sex in his paintings, but nobody calls him a pornographer. So,
4: well, but he was hated at the beginnings. So. Pablo Picasso was never called an asshole.
3: Not oh, like man. you.
5: Now, guys, we know that's a lie. I love Jonathan Richmond. <laughs> Plenty <laughs> of people called Pablo Picasso an asshole. I mean, his ex-wives alone, I'm sure. Yep. <laughs> the party scene was great. That could have that could have been a whole movie, for my taste. And then we we get up to my probably one of my another favorite part uh, for me in this film, which is very John Waters like. Speaking of cult, great cult film directors, because we have a little bit of shrimping. Not total full sale shrimping, but sh- mm-hmm. shrimp like I don't know shrimp yep. <laughs> shrimp a- adjacent, yes, that's oh my god, wow that's a that is a sentence I was not prepared to hear at before ten in the morning.
3: <laughs> I wasn't prepared to utter it
5: that's that's beautiful that's <laughs> that scene and we get to see like Veronica and Tish Ambrose as cat burglars.
3: Right, like like Irma Vep, you know, from uh, from the Fouillade films, right, running around these live characters all in black with the masks. Really great stuff.
4: Yeah. Well, and then the thing that just adds to it is the way that that piece of library music that they used got retranslated later on in pop culture to be the people's court theme. And as, as soon as the music came up, I was like, oh my God, this is the people's court. And I'm just laughing so hysterically because I used to watch the people's court all the time when it was Judge Wapner during the early days of it. There was nothing better than watching people's court, especially late at night. And yeah, to hear that music come up and just be booming on the soundtrack. And it was hilarious when uh, the uh, uh, opening of Misty Beethoven soundtrack was put out. That had the uh, that particular piece of library music on there. And just within five notes, I was like, oh, my God, it's the people's Court."
5: Same thing with Malibu High. of Yes. <laughs> and that one's got also the SCTV little piece of interstitial music. Another
3: little bit of library music trivia humor. Uh, the Something Weird uh, video theme Library track uh, turns up in a lot of late sixties NFL films
5: documentaries. Oh my, oh and so
3: it's great to have, you know, the Chargers oh John descend you know, the the Chargers offensive line was no match for the ferocious Minnesota front four, you know, and then you hear the dun 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 dun. It's it's pretty cool. I highly recommend that.
5: Guys, I, did I get a character name wrong? I, I have to be honest. Like, I, even though I rewatched the film last night, a lot of the male characters that weren't like Perini, I, I kind of—they all were very similar to my brain. I don't know, like Mike, if you ever go through this, doing these notes for the for all the episodes too, <laughs> where character names get a little jumbled,
4: especially in a movie like this where so many of the male characters are just kind of interchangeable. It's like corporate guy one, corporate guy two.
5: Yeah, okay, okay, good. At least it's not just because um, I was trying to remember the name because I love this scene with the. Because in my notes, I have it as Anderson, but I thought Anderson was the guy that died. So now no, I'm
3: that's all. Mr. Margolis.
5: Okay, thank you. Thank you. I,
3: I oh. had to go through three or four databases to find some of these characters' names. For example, I, I don't think her Mook is ever named, is he?
5: I, I could not know because right after he was introduced, I'm like, oh, keep an eye out because he's going to pop back up. And, you know, he was such a funny character.
3: I watched the movie twice. And the second time I kept waiting to eventually find out his name. And then I looked on all the databases and he, wa- he wasn't listed as a performer uh, on the uh, Internet Adult Film Database, which is usually pretty comprehensive. He doesn't seem to have a, a character listing on IMDb. And while we're while we're uh, doing uh, housekeeping in this regard, I have one more question for you guys. There is a character in the IMDb cast listing whose name is Wendy Willingquim. Wendy Willingquim. Who is who is that? We
4: will talk about Wendy Willingquim in the second half of the of the show.
3: Okay. Okay. Well, then 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 I will I will be uh, just demure. And uh, uh, submissive uh, during that discussion, because I'm, I'm not I'm not there. OK, go ahead. Thank you.
5: One thing that we could add to this discussion, I almost feel like there's sort of a, a cool metaphor here. If, if all three of us either didn't hear, you know, obviously, some of the male character names are never really used or if we got them confused because they are all interchangeable. And it's just how like the symbolic corporate white heterosexual oppressor male.
3: <laughs> that exactly.
5: That we associate, and usually pretty rightfully so, with uh, with running corporate America.
4: Well, and to that end, we should probably talk about the end of the film. This is probably one of the most uh, depressing, well, depressing films. I almost said depressing adult films, but I would say just depressing films overall. Because we have had Wanda working so hard with her female compatriots to... Help overturn this company and she is right there on the brink. And it is one of those like ticking clock kind of things. Like as of 10 a.m. on this particular morning, she is going to be basically, she's going to be able to take charge and have the majority stockholder uh, position and be able to take charge of the company. And that's that moment that I mentioned earlier, that whole idea of the, uh, Rock Hudson Doris Day getaway. And, uh, it is, so it's Wanda and the Jamie Gillis character, and they are out in the country and having this wonderful time. And meanwhile, Ron Jeremy is back in the office and, uh, investigating what's going on, and finally finds out that it is Wanda behind this shell company. And then he hurries up and rushes out, uh, to this, uh, this cottage in the wilderness in order to let jamie gillis know, know like the woman that you're sleeping with is the woman that we've been investigating this whole time she's the one who's behind this and you know we've got to stop it and then you think okay uh things are going to change and we're going to have this conversation and there's this whole thing with a, uh, a a drink that has a Mickey in it. And there's a Ron Jeremy getting hit over the head with a bottle, uh, which was fantastic. That's like two movies. in, in within two weeks, that uh, I've had uh, women hitting men over the heads with uh, bottles. Uh, last time was in They Live. But here it is with uh, Ron Jeremy getting knocked over the head. And it's like, OK, great. These guys are taken care of. Wanda is going to win. And everything is going to be A-OK. And that's where the movie should end.
5: Yeah, completely. Because tonally, the the twist ending where yeah the bad guys win the, that that actually threw me off. And I'm usually someone who likes a good like little like ooh okay that's cool. But in, but this film is tonally so light that it, it felt like what like it felt. <laughs> It felt very strange to me. And even though I feel like they were still kind of trying to pull it off as like, you know, because they have like her Mookie confidant guy, whatever, you know, come in and be like, oh, even though I lost all this money, you know, the kid's still got a lot of spunk in her or something like that. And I'm like, no, that doesn't. No, that doesn't make me feel better. Like, <laughs> you know, like that's man yeah, That's that's sad. Yeah, I would say my only real two complaints would be that ending, and also actually some of the music, not counting the People's Court.
3: <laughs> I mean, not only does the film defeat our heroine, but it drives the point home when, after we see Lou, the Jamie Gillis character, take patriarchal control at the head of the conference table in the city uh, in the Tyler uh, Investments, which is now a Perini Investments, we go back to the country house in Connecticut, and we see Janie and Wanda continuing to celebrate, not knowing yet that they have been had. So it doesn't just pull the rug out from under them at the end. We revisit them and anticipate their humiliation that we never get to see. It's it's a real twist of the knife, I think.
4: Well, it's just weird too that we have this almost like Sleeping Beauty type of thing where we do go back to the company and it's been renamed Perini, and you would assume that it's not being renamed Perini like the next day. You're assuming that a lot of time has passed for him to perform these machinations to take over the company, to get the name change, to get in there, and he's having just a workaday day at at uh, his new company. And then it's like, yeah, cut back to, to poor uh, Wanda and it's kind of the next morning. But then at the same time, you're like, wait a second, how much time has passed? So it's just this weird temporal shift that happens at the end of the film as if she had been sleeping for weeks instead of just overnight, you know, celebrating because she and her assistant, you know, broke out the champagne and they are, you know, chugging it down. But, yeah, it's it's as if she has been sleeping now for weeks and finally waking up.
3: And this is a character who has had such rigorous self-control and presence of mind and could always think two or three steps ahead of anyone who could conceivably challenging to who could conceivably challenge her. You know, I mean, the Old Testament, you know, some one of the books of the Old Testament says, do not go to sleep among your enemies, you know, it and it's and so they just get drunk with those guys still in the house. Uh, uh, yeah, it 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 really undercuts much of um, much of what we have seen before.
5: Perini kept the uh, the company's uh, fantastic tagline, which is "Trust Us" in quotation marks. Which that yes. I, I got a good chuckle out of that when I first saw that. I was like, "Oh, that's cute." So there are little things planted to kind of show the audience, like, yeah this this is a, this is not a pretty world. Like we're going to be funny about it and lied about it, but this is a world just riddled with corruption and bullshit and false, you know, false morals. If you look at the film like that, uh, the ending in some ways it's probably maybe realistic. It's like, you know, it's almost like she gets punished for like being human for one moment, because, you know, as, as you've said, like, you know, throughout the whole film, she's very controlled, you know, and the only sex you really see her have that seems, you know, like she's actually probably enjoying it for real is with Jamie is with the yeah. Perini character. Cause everything else is just kind of, it's, you know, she plays it very light and, you know, uh, yeah, it's Veronica. She's fantastic. But, um, but I mean, it's a means to an end. She almost seems relieved when the guys, you know, are, are, are not the uh, most, uh, Uh, long lasting fellas. (laughs) But um, you know, so it's almost like, you know, the one time she's human and, you know, was it the smartest move to to celebrate and get drunk while the guys are still passed out? Absolutely not. But it's a human move. Humans make mistakes, you know, you know, you get especially moments of just like, oh my God, I finally, you know, achieved this, you know, you're gonna want to have champagne. So it's almost like, you know, her one moment of humanity and just getting to let her hair down. It's like, well, you know you had a heart that and you almost get punished for it that you know there's no room for that in this world i mean it's a very which i don't know if that's what they mean i think you could take that uh from it it's just it just to me it's so weird because the film is you know i think that's what threw me off was the tonality there are films that can pull off that kind of cynicism very well which is you know like 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 if if it was a cecil howard film like cecil absolutely master of, of pulling in the dark twist but his films are you know for the most part tonality just so i uh, have that that feeling of just um of multi-layers and, and the dark uh, the dark and sadness of the human condition that's not wanda whips wall street <laughs> right. so um i thought it was curious
4: And it even goes against the name of the film. Of course, there's no whipping in the film, no literal whipping, uh, which was somewhat a a disappointment. But that... She doesn't whip Wall Street. The Wall Street ends up whipping her at the end of the day. And it's just like, oh, man, that kind of goes against what you were selling me here, which was that this woman is going to be triumphant. She's been so smart and so great through this whole thing. And that Perini wins at the end of the day. And it's not like their relationship. You talked about the sex between those two characters. And I agree that that seems to be the moment where she's having the most fun. But I still think that she has an agenda and he's got an agenda and then his agenda is the one that wins out
3: i guess here's where i want to point out uh, what i thought when i first saw the trailer uh, to the film and that was that after uh the masterpiece that was caligula i saw the trailer and i thought that it was a film adaptation of the comic strip oh wicked wanda which had a appeared in penthouse from 1973 to 1980 and so i imagined that that the veronica hart character was going to you know be this sort of master sexual manipulator and that the whole movie seems to be moving toward a final shot where wanda is sitting at the head of that conference table it there's nothing in the trailer there's nothing in the first hour and 20 minutes of the film that just seems to be where we're headed you remember the last shot from uh written on the wind right where the the daughter inherits the company and she sort of sucks on that big oil derrick paperweight on the on the desk at the end of the movie that it just seems like that's that's where we're headed and and then to have that sort of switch at the end was really uh as you say it's sort of totally bizarre and this has been bugging me for days. And and so, so the only thing I can come up with to try to explain this is that there might be two conflicting regimes of satire in this movie. The corruption of the financial sector that the most ruthless and unprincipled person wins. And remember, he's a sort of Uh, investigate the uh, Lou is a sort of investigator, law enforcement, uh, you know, new sheriff in town. We're going to find out the source of all of this, you know, corruption and everything. And of course, he turns the system to his own benefit. And that's certainly part of the, uh, cynicism or skepticism or satire at the, at the base of the film. So we can look at that as sort of one regime of satire. And it's, it's sort of in, in conflict with one of the central Uh, regimes of satire that's characteristic of pornography and that's this idea that the world is controlled by the power of the pussy and that that men can erect if you'll pardon the uh, expression men can erect all of the
0: with lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere
3: Zones of pleasure and privilege, and uh, 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 and and moral corruption, selfishness, and they seem completely bulletproof to the uh, the slings and arrows of the the outside world. But then, when a powerful sexual woman enters that realm, all of those institutions that have made this this male uh, uh, unassailable and invulnerable they just completely collapse and implode. And so at the end of the movie, you know, sort of which, which group of things that they're making fun of, you know, which of those things is going to win out, which, which regime of satire is going to actually come out on top. And they chose the cynical, corrupt, irredeemable institutional satire mode, as opposed to the men are, are, Weak that men are less resourceful than women. Uh, men are less able to think on their feet than women. Uh, men don't fully understand the consequences of what they're doing. Maybe two or three steps down the line, and you, we could just we could name like dozens of porn films that that portray the male characters in this way. That the women are always more intelligent, always more resourceful, always more active, and the men are just kind of helpless in this this onslaught of of amazonian intellectual and physical superiority that the women events and this movie just chooses to take the other take the other tack it's really quite striking it bums me out man
5: mike it's like you see into my soul sir <laughs> it is strangely a downer but i i agree with everything um uh, you were speaking to kevin and it's you know yeah, I mean, because I know people, there is some, I've seen people refer to online as this film as being like a great kind of feminist film. And in a way, I agree with that. But it's definitely not a great feminist film in the sense of like making you feel rah-rah about life <laughs> or the world we live in. Uh, but I respect that. I mean, I don't, I didn't care for the ending because I don't think it fit in with the rest of the film. But I do, I respect any anybody that takes a chance I mean, they had to know that wouldn't be a popular move. You know, yes. I mean everybody involved in this film is I mean, Larry Ravine's one of the best not only in the genre, but I mean he's made films. Like I would argue raw talent's not just a great adult film. It's just a great film. It's just yeah. a great, great, great film. So yeah, I mean, I respect anybody, even if it doesn't hit me well, if you if you make a decision that you know is not gonna be popular but you're sticking to it, good for you, you know. You gotta do what you gotta do. It's your art.
3: One of the real selling points of the Blu-ray and the audio commentary with, uh, Veronica Hart and Larry Ravine is their back and forth, uh, at the end of the film about the resolution of the, of the plot. It's, it's I don't want to give away any spoilers, uh, because, um, DistroPix really deserves our support, uh, for the great, great work they did with this film and many, many others. But I gotta tell you, that's one of the funniest. Bits on the on the commentary when they when they sort of lock horns, uh, if you will, on the um, on the ending of the film. It's really worth a listen.
4: All right. We're going to take a break and play an interview with the director of Wanda Whips Wall Street, Mr. Larry Ravine. I also wanted to let folks know that we have an interview with the writer of Wanda Whips Wall Street, Mr. Rick Marks. That is over at the website projection-booth.com where you can read that interview. I know it doesn't make for the best podcasting in the world, but there is a readable interview with him at projection-booth.com. So be sure to head on over, check that out. And we will, of course, have a link to it from this episode of the projection booth as well so you can uh, maybe read it while you are listening or listen while you're reading one of the two take your choice We asked the man on the street what he thought about the After Movie Diner website and podcast, but sadly he had never heard of either and was on his way to the doctors to have a mole removed. Or it could have been a badger. He wasn't sure. It felt bigger than a mole. Also, he wasn't sure how it got up there in the first place. Anyway, we asked all the famous people, like Michael Ironside, Fred the Hammer-Williamson, Ted Ramey, Barbara Crampton, Cynthia Rothrock, and so on, that they've interviewed over there on the After Movie Diner website and podcast what they thought about the After Movie Diner website and podcast. But most of them said that if we quoted them, we would be hearing from their comical southern lawyers complete with bow tie, meat gut, and brow mopping hanker. So instead, we say who cares what anyone thinks of you, After Movie Diner website and podcast. You are awesome just the way you are, so don't you go changing. If you want to see for
1: yourself, go to aftermoviediner.com or find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner, doing it their own way since
3: 2011. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder.
0: I'm Wendy Hemprock.
3: The viewer's guide to genre television.
0: Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural Focus bonus Hello, everyone,
3: show. and welcome to The Fae Fox, A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday B Movie Reel.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top
3: genre characters of all-time countdown. And
0: tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3.
3: Find us at tuningintosci-fi-tv.com. This is Adam Spiegelman from the cult movie podcast proudly
1: resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, the projection booth.
4: I know it's messed up, right? Where were you at, at your career at the time that Wanda whips wall street was made?
2: You know, I've been in motion pictures, making films, shooting films and stuff for uh, about, uh, I don't know, 15 years already. And I'd worked with Chuck Vincent um and did s- several films with him in the late seventies, early eighties, and uh I for him I did uh, directed Sizzle and Fascination, which did both did well. My camera assistant, who uh been with me for, you know, a couple of years, had a had a um, uh frat uh, friend fr- frat boys had friends on Wall Street, and uh, they pitched the Wall Street guys about doing a film based on Wall Street. This during the era when uh, leverage buyouts were uh, were new, and it was a whole new, uh, you know, the leverage takeovers and all of that stuff was going on. So the Wall Street guys uh, uh, decided they want to go ahead with it. So my camera assistant, um, uh, they the, the reason that they asked me was because at that particular point, of course I was shooting films for Chuck Vincent and, and had my own uh, features out under uh, Chuck's auspices but um uh I was you know, had a higher profile at that point so I was a good uh, bet as far as the Wall Street people go as far as like getting a return on their money and also, with the inclusion of um, Veronica Hart as the uh, leading person, it was it looked like a good bet for them. So uh, we went ahead and did the film uh, with their financing.
4: Now, I had heard that you shot this. And um, correct me if I'm wrong. Five days, hundred thousand dollars. Was that? Is that pretty much in the ballpark?
2: Yeah, pretty much. I don't remember exactly the days on it, but that would have been about. That would have been about the schedule that we worked on in those days. We, we averaged, you know, an average script is about 110 pages, and we would average, uh, uh, you know, 10 pages a day. Uh, and even, b- but because of the sex, uh, you know, there would be less pages and, and more more film run through the camera. As a result, because the sex scenes are normally, I mean, that's one of the interesting things about that, that people don't latch on to too much about the fact that X rated films, aside from having a built in audience, are, are, are some of the most inexpensive films to make because you can, you can shoot, uh, you know, uh, if the people are, are, Professional and you, you can shoot a, a, a sex scene in half an hour. I even got an award once for a sex scene I did in eleven minutes with four people. And uh, uh, so the, that that was that's what uh, led to you know the the, the prominence of, uh, of the X-rated features at that point. and Also the, because in the late seventies, when the Supreme Court put the Ball back in the local courts, so to speak. Um, businessmen came in, so it was, uh, it was a good business venture. That's why the Wall
4: Street guys were primed to do that. Here's kind of a, um, maybe a silly and hopefully not too pedantic question, but when you are shooting an adult film, I don't imagine that you save all the sex scenes till the end, because obviously everyone would be really super tired. Do you kind of split it out and, and say, okay, on Monday we're doing this scene for the sex on Tuesdays, this one, and just kind of schedule things around people so that they're not just exhausted when it comes to almost having too much sex?
2: Yes, in a general sense, the idea, well, you know, generally what would happen would be that we would... Um, Shoot the sex scene in the sequence of the dialogue, mainly because uh you know the whole idea of trying to repeat the set the lighting the costumes and all that stuff it was more expeditious to shoot as you went and since we uh you know were doing dialogue on these things they didn't you know the sex scene like I said might might only last uh, half an hour an hour and 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 the heavy lifting uh, Uh, excuse the the expression, was uh, really on the guys, not so much the girls. And so we shot them in in sequence. The thing that wore people down more than the actual having the physical contact and performing was the fact that we had to do a, uh, a soft version, too. So we'd actually have to shoot the hard scene first and then go back and shoot the soft scene. So that 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 took more out of people than, uh, than uh, you know, the actual physical sex scene. It's like repeating it again. We'd only like, do maybe two or three sex scenes a day, and they'd always be with different people. So that there wasn't much of a, uh,
4: you know, it wasn't much of a, a burden on them. Now, your screenwriter on this one, Rick Marks, when had you met him?
2: I met Rick through, uh, Chuck Vincent. Rick was the, uh, was Chuck's, uh, the screen uh, writer at the time that, uh, we did Wanda. And he was writing all of Chuck Vincent's, um, all of Chuck Vincent's films. And it, Rick, I must say, was, was a good part of why the deal went through besides you know, my having some credibility and Veronica Hart being, uh, she was relatively new at that point. Uh, but Rick had the, really had the, uh, the, the, you know, the the writing um, credentials because he had done so much with Chuck. He had done, you know, a lot of other, for other people. He was right for everybody in town here at one point.
4: Yeah. It seems like uh, in the early eighties, he had so many credits and then also, kind of showing up a few times as an actor here and there
2: yeah yeah he was he was um he played one of the one of the gang members and they uh, believe it was in roommates yeah in roommates he was he was in that scene in that scene with gang members but he prolific writer really just could really you know uh, take a concept and formalize it and he worked very close with the Wall Street guys because all of that all the intricacies of the, you know, the leverage buyout and uh, that sort of thing, were he had to get briefed by that. So he went to, you know, he actually did uh, sessions with the Wall Street guys to get those details straight.
4: Yeah, you kind of predated uh, Oliver Stone by a few years here.
2: Yeah, yeah. He, ha- he hasn't spoken to me since.
4: What was it like working with Jamie Gillis?
2: You know, I knew Jamie from... The Loop Days back in the early seventies, when when I first started out, Jamie was working, and Jamie Jamie um, was a personality that uh, sort of commanded respect in as much as that he was very a very New York guy, and he was very hip, if I can use that term term in terms of like uh, his social abilities um, but as far as working with him he was great he was a consummate performer uh, professional and uh, he would he knew his he knew his lines he was in I mean he really was into the acting so um, but he could also the the sex scenes he was he was not adverse to those either. But uh he he was uh he was very good to work with. You knew that when you went on the set and Jamie was working, you, you knew that there wouldn't be any problem in that department, that he'd come equipped and he'd deliver.
4: I also want to ask you how was uh working with Ron Jeremy.
2: Well I knew Ron from um uh, from his first forays into uh into X uh and uh, as a matter of fact my f- my film sizzle was his first uh, speaking part and then then based on his performance in that he uh he did uh, uh we did fascination right after that and that was his first leading role uh Ron Ron was a Ron, and still is a character he's um he's uh he, you know it's difficult to get him to uh uh, just listen. But, uh, uh, as far as coming through, he, 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 he you know, he's a, he is he, surprisingly, he's a consummate actor and he, um, uh, as far as the, the sex performances go, he, he, I mean, Ronnie would, Ronnie was one of the few guys that could perform two or three, uh, scenes in a day. And, um, we had a, uh, you know, I, I I would be shooting the uh, the sex with him, and uh, I get down. I'd have like a hundred feet of thirty five millimeter film left in the magazine, and I'd say, "Okay, Ronnie," you know, at the end of the, I'd say, you know, "Let's do the the money shot," and he says, "Okay," and he says, "Watch me," and then he would, you know, he'd go into action, and he'd say, "Okay," ten and I'd go ten, nine, eight, and invariably, when I got to one. He'd deliver.
0: <laughs>
2: it was amazing. I mean, Ron is an amazing uh, physical guy, you know.
0: There's such a... Uh- With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, A great
4: amount of humor in Wanda Whips Wall Street that is just, uh, it really reminds me of kind of a, a screwball comedy of old.
2: Yeah, that's good. Like, I like that. Yeah, they, yeah well, you, you know, the casting, it's all about the casting. And uh, you give them the lines and they, they, they play them. I mean, that one scene in Wanda when um, Veronica uh, is trying to get on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and she gets uh, the guy into the closet and does the scene with him in the closet, gets him to take his clothes off. Um, I mean, that I had no idea how well Veronica would, would play that scene. I mean, she just... You know, and plays to the camera. She really knew uh, knew the screen craft. Um, it was like in her DNA. And that one little section there where she's got him, got his eyes closed. He's sitting up on some boxes, and she's putting on his clothes so she can... And she, she sort of turns, she's working towards the camera, and she says, And I'm going to something right up the crack of your ass i mean it was so perfectly timed that that uh, that whole scene almost played as one shot
4: she is always so good but she i mean she carries the film it is amazing and this was what did you say this was one of her first features
2: yes yes it was i i just i i just met uh veronica maybe Oh, two years before, a year before she was new in New York. She caught on like wildfire, understandably, with her talent and uh, looks and, and abilities. I mean, not every woman in, in, uh, in the exit could, you know, do three sex scenes in a day and do ten pages of dialogue and do uh, six scene changes and costume changes and never miss a beat she was always on time always delivered always
4: in recent years they've uh, there have been screenings of wanda whip's wall street especially around when it was being restored what was it like seeing it with an audience again after so many years
2: that was such a treat because uh, you know, when, when, in the mid 80s, when, when video, uh, took, uh, video and cable took over the, uh, theatrical X films, it was a great loss. We didn't have the, the premiere screening in a theater anymore. I mean, we did, we did with Wanda, but after that, uh, you know, it was, uh, it went straight to, uh, to video and, and that was it. There was no, you know, kind of final, finalization. You know, you get to go into the room with all the people. Everybody looks at it and you look for the. So seeing it again was a deja vu in terms of like really watching the audience and appreciating what it was that they were seeing because the irony of, of watching a film that you've made is that people will laugh at something. You've seen it thousands of times while you're editing. People will laugh at something that you don't understand while they're laughing, and they'll they'll not laugh at things that you knew were a a guaranteed side splitter. It's just one of the most exciting things to watch an audience um, viewing your film because you never know, you know, it's the same film, it's a different audience, and they all they respond differently. So I was really happy to do that. Was a that was a high point watching that again, and of course having Veronica there and uh, Rick Marks there and all the people. It was really, uh, really quite something, especially since when we made those films, they were for theatrical, and they, you know, we generally thought that they'd have the shelf life of sushi, and we were, <clears> happy, <throat> you know, just to be looking at that film 30, 35 years later was just amazing. It, it, it certainly made a big impression on me, it's like be careful of what you <laughs> be careful of what you do yeah you know? it's like the internet you know don't post that Facebook thing you <laughs> think twice about it you know yeah it was that was great that was really great a lot of new faces new new people reaction and a lot of the old people it was just great to see them you know see their old friends and stuff up on the up on the screen
4: the context of the movie has changed definitely changed over 30-some years since it's been out. Just the, um, uh, the, when you talk about the jokes hitting or not hitting, I know for me watching it, the one thing that was absolutely hysterical that was not intended to be was the use of the same library music that the People's Court used.
2: Oh, yeah, we preceded them. When I was doing Wanda during that period in the 80s, um, they charged, uh, y- 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 you know, um, you would use canned music, and um, you go to the library. Actually, I was I had a studio at 46th Street at the, uh, 45th Street at that time, and right across the street was Valentino's uh, library of music. And you go in, and they there were records, and they would charge you seventy-five dollars a needle drop. And That was for one. One cut off of a song, and then you or a tune whatever, and then you had to have that transferred to a uh, 35 millimeter sprocketed full coat um, uh, magnetic tape. So it was expensive, and it got to the point they were going up and up. Uh, it got to the point that it was actually cheaper to produce the music than to buy canned music. But as far as why that music got used was. Uh, you can imagine with hundreds of records, when you start narrowing it down and looking for something that was during that period that was uh, sort of current music-wise, you were limited to maybe one or two albums that that were possibly, you know, useful. And you'll notice that Radley Metzger used some of the same music in his films, so. Uh, I don't know if the People's Court <laughs> got the association, you know, for their music for, from from uh, from the porn films, but uh, it was it was very kind of limiting. Uh, that that was one aspect of it that I didn't like because you were really kind of you know stuck with whatever the comes out of the can.
4: Do you still hear some of the music that you used all those years ago pop up in odd places?
2: yeah occasionally uh, occasionally i will hear i will hear something but more more than that it's the style that style of of music it was um you know it was kind of a spin off from the James Bond type music and uh, there were a lot of, I mean, the, those tracks are basically just cliches, you know, in themselves all put together. I will hear a little fra- a refrain or something you know, it, it'll, you know, get that, that little flashback like you do when you hear a song that was popular in your high school years or something. Uh, so yeah, I, but you know, I, I didn't really, I wasn't really crazy about that music at all but that's what we were stuck
4: with yeah the name of the movie is wanda whips wall street and at the end of the day she doesn't really whip wall street was there ever any uh consternation about the way that she loses at the end of the day and almost the bad guys win at the end of the film
2: you put into the context of the time. That uh, you know, this was the early '80s, with the the expression "glass ceiling" hadn't even been in, 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 introduced at that at that point, and the idea of uh, a woman uh, wiling her ways and getting inside and creating havoc within those uh, those Wall Street walls uh was enough and you know they popped that champagne bottle at the end she and uh, and her cohort and in a way it is a uh it it is a uh triumph for them because they they did manage to you know they lost they lost the fight but they won the battle
4: i want to know if you happen to know who arthur Greenstance is.
2: It, 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 was he the guy that played the uh the character that she always refers with—is that who you're speaking of?
4: I'm getting the name Arthur Greenstands from the film Stocks and Blondes.
2: Oh, okay, all right. So, as I mentioned, um, my camera assistant and his buddy were the ones that got the Wall Street guys going and uh, they, to put the money in. And uh, after after we did the the Wanda film, uh, they originally went, the Wall Street guys, uh, they originally went with uh, Chuck Vincent as, as a distributor. And Chuck had, was coming out at uh, about the same time with roommates. What he did was he put Wanda as the second billing in a two billing uh, with with uh, roommates, and effectively what that does is it means he has he has his own film which he's getting the profits. Wanda, which he's only distributing, he gets more profit because it's running with his film so he's he's cleaning it up on on both ends that way. and what happened was the the Wall Street guys figured out real quick what was going on and they took the film away from him. At that point there was some um you know, there was some uneasy feelings with the with the guys that I was dealing with, um and uh they wanted to do they wanted to go on and do an R rated version. So Stocks and Blondes was the R rated version of uh Wanda. And uh, I had uh, absolutely no uh, involvement in that at all. You know, so that was uh, Arthur Greenberg. Uh, I don't know who that is referring to. Was it like in the production, in the producers or something?
4: He's listed as the new director of the film. Oh,
2: I know who it is. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, that, was his, uh, that was his first film. That was his last film. Uh, uh. He he was a gaffer. He had been my gaffer on a couple of films, and um, the guys, the two guys, from my camera assistant, they were all friends and stuff. So they got
4: him to direct. You talked about the whole idea of shooting the hardcore version and then shooting the softer version. Did they release the R-rated versions more widely, and then the X-rated versions just to specific markets?
2: The system that, that we used in those days, Mike, was that we would... Uh, see, the complication was to make other prints, to make a whole new negative and so forth for the soft version. And soft was really a stepchild. I mean, it, you know, there was a, there might only be, let's say, if you had uh, 20 prints, maybe only about four of them would be soft versions, and they, they would play, play in places that uh, had legal... Uh, constraints, uh, but what we did was we would shoot the film uh, as an X-rated film, and and then we would go back, um, would shoot the the soft core based on um, based on the scene that we had just done the the hardcore scene, uh, position wise and so forth, and then in the editing we would cut the soft scene frame. Um, the, the section, the whole sex scene frame to frame. In other words, where the, the um, hardcore started, the soft core would, would cut in there, and where the hardcore ended, uh, the soft core would end. The reason for that was that we'd make we'd, we'd cut the film uh, with an x-rated version first then go back after the film was already mixed and 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 um uh completed we go back and use the the film and cut the soft core to the to the x print so that it came out exactly frame to frame uh from the uh and then th- that way um the music see the problem was that <clears throat> if you you know you have a whole you have to construct a whole new soundtrack for that type of thing, so consequently, what we could do was take and just cut the actual release prints cut in these these modules. Uh, of the soft core, and they would have the same music track. In other words, we'd we'd make up. I remember we'd make up like uh, an an average X-rated film would have maybe seven sex scenes in it, and um, so we'd would we'd make up a reel of seven soft core scenes, and and have it printed with the same music from the. From the uh, X-rated version, and then they would physically cut the release prints and insert that—you know—cut out the X and just insert this little uh, module into the um, into the actual release print. It was it was econ- economics all the way. Um, you know, there was a lot of stuff like that. For instance, like we never edited in thirty-five; we always edited in sixteen. Because you save thousands of dollars just on the work prints, and and then um, you know they would do a reduction print, would edit in sixteen, and then the negative matcher would be the one that would um, correspond the thirty five millimeter to the sixteen millimeter print. That's how the films got made. But you save thousands that way. You know there were there were a bunch of little uh, 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 price saving. Things that we do. For instance, we we always used Israeli slates. What they call Israeli slates. Uh, you know, um, the when they put the slate up in front of the camera, when we go start a scene the clap, the clap sticks. Uh, like, we would, we would use the, well, first thing we'd do is we didn't have, we had, we used consecutive numbers on the sound takes. It started at one, went all the way through to the last sound take. That way there was no confusion. Most people, most people can't wrap their head around that. That's easier than having scene 36, take 22, and the sound would be, you know, that same number. It just made it easier. The other thing was that, uh, um, and this got really crazy with Chuck Vincent and Bill Slobodian, his, his AD. Um, we do the Israeli slates and, uh, the normal procedure is that they say, uh, you know, is the, 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 to, be, to begin a tape, uh, to, to begin a scene, uh, or a shot, they say, uh, okay, roll sound, The sound man says speed. The cameraman will say mark it, and the slate is made right there. And the marking would come as quick to market as possible. To save frames, you know, feet. You could, if you're shooting forty thousand feet of film, and you use five feet for every um, slate, you know, you wind you wind up with like four thousand feet of slates at the end of the. At at the end of the editing process, so we'd do this and be very quick. It was a roll sound speed, market click, boom, action. You know, so it was like all of these cost-saving factors were part of what was used to save money, and that's why those films got done at the at the ridiculously low amount of money that they. If they were done, but I think Wanda to make a correction. I think Wanda was two fifty. I think they had two hundred fifty thousand for that. I'm not sure. Don't don't quote me. Um, I, I think it was a little more than than a hundred thousand.
4: If a movie's taking say five days to shoot, how long does it take to edit and mix and do all this thing? Do all the other things uh, before it's ready to actually go out into the market
2: okay i i shot shot wanda uh and we started editing right away it takes roughly about three months and that's that's uh whenever i would edit edit a film like that it was almost like when you finish it it's it's like getting out of stir it's like you walk out and see the sunshine for the first time in days yeah, weeks or months and um so it took about three months, three months maybe, uh, then, then you know, then it's in the hands of the lab. And the labs were pretty efficient, so they, you know, would get turnarounds so, and all that, all that stuff. But it would take five days to, it would take the equivalent of what it took to shoot the film to mix the film, you know, to do the sound mix on it, uh, because that was such a slow and tedious process, you know, inching your way through the film.
4: It sounds like you shot most of the sex scenes uh, without sound uh, probably for savings and then also to kind of control the uh, atmosphere a little bit more is that true
2: uh, yes yes that's true Mike. um the the uh, the sex scenes generally were shot without sound uh, and that was another thing I didn't really particularly care for uh, but it to do to actually see a cameraman can go and uh Let's say in a room with two people and shoot a sex scene and, you know, half an hour, an hour, depending on the guy. But if you had to bring in the boom man, the sound man, uh, use a blimped camera, the, the sex scenes were always shot with the Airy 2C, which is a, uh, a non blimped camera. It means when you, when you turn that camera on, it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's like a noisy thing, but you could work fast that way. And that was in in, um, in deference mainly to the actors. A lot of that had to do with the actors because, you know, just having so many people have to make slates, just making slates to do the slate to sync the sound for something like that, and it wasn't always guaranteed that they were were really good at at uh, making audio audible sounds so we could do that later, you know, which always showed. I mean, that's the one thing I always have to laugh at because I remember being in uh, being in the booth once with uh, uh, my, it was Wanda, it was doing Wanda, uh, my uh, editing assistant uh, and myself were in the booth. And she and I were making the moans and groans, and my old lady walked in. Into the into the studio, so it was funny, you know. It was funny. Oh, oh, <laughs> you know, you try you try not to you try not to overdo it, you know. And you'd have they'd unspool uh, on the desk in the in the bongo booth where you do the sound. Uh, they would unspool a, a, a roll of of magnetic tape on the table, and you kind of swish that around to make to do folies for the for the sheets. <laughs> coverage and stuff while you're doing the moans and groans but generally you know it was uh it, it was too you know it was it became like cliche sounding those sounds and everything so it was it was not it would have been a nicer to you know but the, but the reason we did those films on five days was because you know we were we were cranking i mean you know if it took more than an hour to shoot a sex scene you know it was a problem
4: I'm curious, are you working on a uh, another volume of your memoir
2: uh yes i i have the two out and i have the third written i haven't been um i haven't been uh, able to really address myself to it time wise because i've been i've moved several times in the last year right now i'm working very hard um uh in uh hudson new york uh and i have a studio over in Athens. And, uh, I have a big, uh, it's the old Peaky Boat Factory. Um, I have, uh, a, a person I'm working with, um, you know, we sell bars. So we, we bring the bars in and we set them up and I photograph them and, uh, we sell them. And, uh, it's, it's really a, an extension, you know, of, um, of, uh, the, the film thing because you know, I'm dressing sets. <laughs> you know, <laughs> doing sets, and I will use them actually to do. So, I'm working on a film now, and <laughs> it's nice to have um, the luxury of having a, a whole huge studio to work work in.
4: What film are you working on these days?
2: I haven't done any um, X stuff since the eighties, and um, that was that was mainly because uh, you know my daughter was born in eighty two, and. Uh, my ex and I, uh, you know, talked it over and thought, well, you know, when she gets to be uh, grade school age, it might be awkward for, you know, what's your daddy do? Right, I stepped into that, but uh, but I have I have two two I have one film that's um in um making the rounds with the. Uh, Film festivals and another film on, and you know, I just have to find a bass player to finish that. (laughs) Uh, But I'm working on uh, another film based on using manipulating a timeline uh, using a train uh, back and forth in terms of time uh, in a situation with somebody in a room or a couple of people in a room type of thing uh so that's that's where i mean it's so much easier now mike with the digital come on I mean, it's unbelievable you know i show up with a little bag and and shoot video uh you know with film i show up with a truck you know and four guys to to move the stuff and uh it's quite different so it's very immediate i love it i'm i'm going i'm doing great with the, you know, doing the editing, doing all your editing and all your effects and music and mixing and everything right at your laptop. It was great.
4: I know when we talked the, the very first time, we talked about raw talent, and that was kind of on that cusp of film going into video. And you talked about how much it took to get video to look good, especially I think you were talking to the uh the second and third raw talents, how that was to the to struggle to get video to look good. Does digital give you an image that you're happy with?
2: Yes. Yes. And 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 Mike, I knew it the moment that they introduced the red camera. Uh uh you're familiar with the Red, I'm sure. Um uh, when that you know, I was I was number 1200 serial numbers to buy that camera before they even built it you know I saw the the writing on the wall and digital was the solution video was I didn't like video and I didn't like people that did and you know it just always fell short of, of expectations it never never raised but digital man it's there it's it's beyond i mean you know digit, uh, film is 1500 lens uh, resolution and you know digital is whatever free, three, three thousand or whatever you make it. So uh, yeah, it's much better. It's much better, and the the way I mean, it's it, it's immediate now. People. People that could not afford to make films in 1980, you know, they can do it now. And uh, whether they're good or bad it doesn't matter. It's it's like giving everybody a ballpoint pen and saying, "Okay, you know, right. You know, it's uh, everybody has the possibility of of making films, and I think we're going to see a lot of changes in the the way films are structured and so forth as a result of that. It's out of, the, it's out of the hands of the format, the Hollywood format, so to speak.
4: When we last talked, uh, you, I can't remember if you were just starting or if you had just finished a, a road trip. Can I ask you a little bit about how that went?
2: Uh, yes, that was, that must've been the one with, uh, Gerard Damiano. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, like I said, it was interesting. It was interesting to see a lot of people that I had worked with early in the seventies, not late seventies, early. Sharon Mitchell, you know, I worked with her when she was uh, when I was down on Fourteenth Street with Bob Wolf and the doing the loops in the basement. Jamie Gillis, you know, of course, he was gone by that point. So, but uh, Rob Everett was one who also had worked down there and I saw him out in California and he's you know he's had a tough time but you know he's such a gentleman and just such a uh, you know inspiring person he has he has a a son who is um, uh, challenged uh, mentally challenged and you know Rob spends his life taking care of that kid now you know so uh, it was nice seeing him and Sharon Mitchell and Joao Fernandez and and uh uh Annie Sprinkle and uh Ron Jeremy and uh some people that uh I you know sort of forgotten about but you know, Annette Annette Hines was um on the agenda. We stopped and interviewed her so it was, It was, in a way, it was a a kind of, um, uh, you, you know, I always, I always think of like people in terms of like, you meet people in it's in intersecting art, and then there are other people that are like a circle. You, you, you meet them, you know, them, you see them 10 years later, and it's still, you know, they're still, uh, welcome in your, in your, um, ability to, to like people, you know, they you like those people, and that's what was interesting for me. But you know, I did all the driving; it was ten thousand miles, so uh, it was it was quite a quite a trip in terms of like just uh, burning rubber on the, on the interstate all 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 over the country.
4: What was the purpose? Is that going to be turned into a documentary or?
2: Yes, yes. Uh Gerard Gerard is um I don't know what he's done on it um at this point. That was summer before last um Gerard is, is cutting that together and he's also what what his what the thrust of it was were people that worked with his father, Jerry Camiano. Uh and he he actually uh which was very good. Um he 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 took clips, he took scenes that people who we were interviewing, and he played them, and the people uh, talked about, you know, like the director's voiceover they do on the DVDs and stuff, people talked about the film, what they remembered, what they remembered about Jerry, what they remembered about the scene, and that type of thing. So he is going to eventually put all of that uh, together into um, into a film and uh like i said i don't know where he is in terms of the, uh finishing it but uh we we shot about i don't know we shot about 2000 people for that film
4: so it sounds like everything's going pretty good with you
2: yeah mike i'm i'm uh, you know uh, i'm a big believer in providence and the thing is that uh you know i i went through um, i went through kind of a uh uh Big change. I had to leave New York. Uh, my my landlady's uh, son got a girlfriend, so I lost my apartment. <laughs> you know, um, but I I I uh, have been been busier than hell, and I'm involved in all kinds of things here in in Hudson. Uh, besides my you know finishing my third book and and working on the films that I've got is uh, going now uh, I'm uh, helping design bicycles I'm helping uh, sell these bars you know I'm, I'm being uh, uh, I was starting uh, we have several venues here that uh, I have uh, control over that uh, you know starts playing some music again and showing films and different things so there's a lot going on and I'm really uh looking forward to, by the end of the summer, um, some of these things shall have come to fruition. I just finished uh, uh, doing a uh, uh, project for um, on Houston Street. Uh, The guy I work with uh, owned a property on Houston Street, and it was right next door to where Nikola Tesla had his laboratory and also um, Kepler, uh, Joseph Kepler, who started Puck Magazine, and Teddy Roosevelt and uh, and uh, uh, Mark Twain—they were all like we call it the Mulberry Street Gang. It's the name of the of the the, the uh, project, and uh, so we'll be starting a documentary on that. And uh, so, you know, I got a bunch of things going on. Some things I never thought I'd ever be involved with. I'm doing now, so that's great. You know, it's like learning plumbing instead of instead of having to marry one. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we're doing well.
4: Right, we are back and we are talking about Wanda Whip's Wall Street. Now, one of the phenomenons that we have talked about in this podcast before is the whole idea of taking a movie like this, cutting out some of the more hardcore sex, maybe shooting some new inserts and repackaging it as a new movie. And Wanda Whip's Wall Street was one of those, uh, I don't know if a victim is the right word or one of those subjects, let's say. There was a movie that came out in 1984, so about three years after this movie came out, called Stocks and Blondes, and it is a reworking of Wanda Whip's Wall Street. Uh, a severe reworking, I was very surprised at just how much new stuff was shot for this particular film. It was uh directed or I guess redirected by uh, a guy going by the name of arthur greenstands uh I'm, and that Kevin is where our uh willing quim character comes from uh, uh-huh. <laughs> that, it is. Lay Wood, who plays Wendy Willenquim, who is the member of a sorority, I Felt a Thigh, and she is investigating the case of this woman, Wanda, who was trying to take over this company a few years prior. She's uh, uh, in college. She's going through and investigating.
0: Let me take you back in time to my days as a carefree co-ed at New York Business University. Her fate led me to Wanda, one shrewd lady who knew how to use her
3: assets,
4: and so you actually get reshoots with these characters. Uh, at one point, she goes in to see Ron Jeremy, who is working at a place called Schmada's uh, down in the uh, Garment District. And she goes in there and interviews him, and he gives his thoughts. She meets up with Wanda herself, with Veronica Hart. And then this movie, uh, well, it's it's interesting because they reshoot – All of those scenes with the mook that we're talking about, every time Wanda picks up the phone and calls her guy, her broker guy, it's a different actor.
0: Art, yeah, I'm in. I got a job with Tyler Securities, and you know how big they are.
4: Beautiful, baby. Fantastic. You know, you're a real pro.
0: Tyler will be all mine, just like Wanko is now.
1: I want you to concentrate on acquiring those shares, establish your position. And let me handle the paperwork. Boom, boom, boom. From Tyler one day to your dummy
4: corporation the next. I've had a charter as LaBelle, brothers.
0: All right, I am not a brother.
4: <laughs> but you are LaBelle. It'll provide you with uh, complete anonymity for our, uh, shall we say, slightly shady deals.
0: Slightly shady? Why don't you lawyers ever call a spade a spade? I, right, I stole Wanko. And I intend on stealing Tyler as well. <laughs> <laughs> I got a job with Tyler Securities. You know how big they are.
3: Beautiful, baby. Fantastic.
0: will be all mine, just like Wanko is now.
3: I want you to concentrate
4: on acquiring those shares. You know, establish your position.
1: You know, you handle the calisthenics and let me handle the paperwork. Boom, from Tyler one day to your dummy corporation the next.
3: Yeah, I've had it charted as LaBelle Brothers.
0: Art, I am not a brother.
3: (laughs) It's the perfect cover for our, let's say, slightly
4: shady little deals.
0: Slightly shady? Why don't you lawyers ever call a spade a spade? Art, I stole Wanko. And I intend on stealing Tyler as well.
4: (laughs) Great. Great. So they recast kind of like what those conversations are, which is interesting, And then they actually switch up the ending. So if you want the happy ending, you can... If you want the happy ending, it's $100 extra. If you want the happy ending, you can watch Stocks and Blondes, and we don't have... Jamie Gillis and Ron Jeremy getting up and going into the city and starting Perini brothers or Perini company, we have Wanda successful at the end of the day. We get a little bit extra at the end, as far as like uh kind of uh, somebody's trying to stop Wendy willing quim from writing her paper and exposing the truth. But uh yeah, it, it's amazing just how much new stuff there is. It doesn't even start with wanda coming out of wanko at the beginning of the film until about 10 minutes in and there are moments of Wendy the that go throughout this film i mean there are large chunks so it's not just you know a slight trim here and there of removing the sex scenes so it, it's remarkable uh, as far as how much they uh, repackage
3: this film citizen wanda in other words
4: pretty much yeah
3: yeah luckily
4: wanda isn't dead at the beginning <laughs> and we don't cut to news on the march, but yeah, it's it's pretty much, you know, how did this woman become as successful as she is?
3: Insert rosebud joke here.
5: That's well that's still more subtle than at what was that sorority name? Was it I Felt, I felt a uh, guy Jesus. That's <laughs> God, Porky's had more subtlety than that. Hey, Porky's is a great film. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not. I'm just making a subtlety joke here. But um, yep. I, I read I read one of the articles. Um, I haven't seen this this film, but um, I did read the articles you linked to, uh, Mike, and um, particularly like Casey Scott's review, which is really good and detailed. Um, Casey does great work, so no shock there. But like it mentioned that like the Tish Ambrose character, Janie, is real bitter, and she's like a stripper is that
4: yeah yeah they they go to her within uh just a few minutes and i'm just like why are they at this strip club and that's where they bring her in
5: oh god that's so sad poor Janie.
4: <laughs> it is it is
5: this is for school give me a
0: break oh about the a brand takeover that bitch who wonder brand no nancy reagan who else but i thought you two used to be good friends
4: yeah i can't say it's all peaches and cream but uh at least one is successful at least she's sitting there at the head of the table at brant enterprises at the end of the film
3: and so they bring uh veronica back to shoot new scenes yeah okay yeah okay fantastic yeah Yeah, they've
4: brought her back they brought uh ron jeremy back um i don't think that they brought Jamie Gillis back, but, yeah, they at least brought those guys back, which was just uh, amazing to see. And to see, you know, Ron, uh, his physical transformation within just a few years, his he's got that um, Isro starting uh, to grow out pretty good. Because his hair is pretty pretty under control at the beginning of uh, or, or throughout Wanda Whip's Wall Street. But he is, uh, he's starting to get hedgehog qualities as we move into this.
5: The hedgehog qualities is that that needs to go in an article. If, he, if any one of us, the three of us, write, next time we write about it, film with Ron Jeremy, which I'm sure will happen. Hedgehog a subsection.
3: Qualities.
5: Yeah. <laughs> hedgehog qualities. yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that,
3: that, that really astonishes me about this movie is Veronica's acting is breathtaking throughout. Uh, and this is particularly unbelievable when we learn that larry Ravine did not have time to do rehearsals for the film that that chuck vincent uh uh whose whose own films uh he was producing uh and so it was kind of his uh you know his candy store uh they would have read throughs before uh you know before the shoot before the you know the crew was assembled and and all this other stuff and veronica hart in an interview said that all they did for this film was run their lines during makeup and uh, uh, that the the whole great sex scene in the car between Ron Jeremy and Tish Ambrose, all that comic dialogue is completely improvised and Veronica throughout the movie is not only acting, you know, play, not, not only is, you know, Jane Hamilton playing Veronica Hart, the porn star who's playing Wanda, which is a fascinating, you know, layered thing in and of itself, but, she's also acting and manipulating the people around her. And, and so she has to let us know that, that what she is doing is dishonest and manipulative, but it's going over the heads of the people around her. So she has to add that extra layer of knowingness or something to the, to the performance. And, and, you know once again not only is she good at Wanda but she's good showing Wanda adroitly in some cases and with difficulty in other cases stepping in and out of these roles and one of the real like comic like master strokes of the film is after she's conned the um the stockbroker in the uh in the broom closet to uh put on his you know to take off his clothes and then she puts the clothes on there's this shot where she comes out and she awkwardly but assertively adjusts his clothes on her body. He she adjusts the, the coat, she adjusts the hat and she adjusts the glasses, so she takes off her earrings. And and we see her she, she changes from the from the Wanda gate to the Martin gate, and it's just this wonderfully disciplined moment of physical comedy. And and I just can't think of anyone else uh, in the business. Uh, uh at the time except uh maybe uh, Annette Haven or Leslie Beauvais, who could really do that kind of thing i mean the, her performance is multi-layered and and th- that is of course against the set of norms of acting in the linking scenes that we associate with female porn actors and so the initial scene with her job interview she kind of has that that uh, turned up to 11 kittenish look when she's, when she's looking at him, you know, and it's, it's like, okay, that's how porno girls look when they're about to fuck a guy because they want something. And so she just almost never loses a beat, uh, in any of these scenes. Um, he, and we talked about the sex scene, the outdoor sex scene with uh, the Jamie Gillis character Lou, you know, that's, that's the sort of scene that's usually, the, the big problem solving aria uh, at the end of a movie that, that it cements their romantic bond and that, that they become uh, a unit at the, at the end of the film. And and she even does that beautifully well. So I just can't imagine anyone else carrying this film the way she does. It's truly extraordinary. And then we know that the movie cost a hundred thousand dollars. They had a five day shooting schedule and there were no rehearsals. It's it's just breathtaking what she's able to do.
5: Veronica Hart was one of, one of my absolute first favorites. She was like the actress that kind of actually got me in to watching more classic adult and and really getting into it. Um, she's she's amazing. I think Tish Ambrose does not get enough respect though because she's yeah. really Tish is so underrated and she's vulnerable here, she's adorable, she's very funny. Um and she could do more again, another one of those, uh, not unlike Ron, where, you know, she could do dramatic and, and didn't really I don't think she always got the most amount of opportunities to do that. But um uh, definitely check out uh, Roger Watkins American Babylon which is yes. ma- which is a masterpiece and one of my favorite films of all time and she's um she's she's absolutely uh perfect in that.
3: And when we talk about Ron's dramatic uh, work, I strongly urge people to check out uh, uh, the story of Prunella, sort of a a, a noir rape and revenge film that uh, that the Avon people put together, directed by Phil Prince. Uh, that's a much much darker inflection of the the Ron Jeremy persona, and he does a great job. And in there's it's incredibly downbeat ending, and he he just hits it out of the park. It's
5: fantastic. On a shallow note, she looks stunning here. I mean, she is still a beautiful woman, but she like just I don't know. She's exquisite. Um, every way so we're we're gonna veronica hart fan club (laughs) on this episode because absolutely because she is she is phenomenal as you know uh as is ron jeremy yeah also check out scoundrels if anybody's wanting to see his uh a a more dramatic and darker side oh god that's a
3: great film
5: oh my god that's that's another masterpiece that's probably definitely tied with firestorm it's my favorite cecil howard film which we i know we lost cecil recently and um you know, he, he definitely needs to get, I mean, all of these artists do, but, you know, as much as Metzger, which Radley deserves everything, because he's an auteur and a genius, too, but so does Cecil Howard. So I think everybody needs to, you know, preserve his work and, and definitely seek him out.
3: I wonder what the copyright uh, custody chain is like on the, on the Howard films. Uh, uh, they, um, what was the one that came out with the, with the beautiful uh, two-disc thing about five years ago?
5: Oh uh Neon Nights.
3: Neon Nights, right, right. Which yes.
5: which thank God I, I got my mitts on that when it was in print because I Lord only knows how much it's going for <laughs> on eBay yeah. because it's way out of print. But um and that and it's a it's a great release of it. It's uncut. There's some great interviews with Jamie and Eric Edwards. It's um the beautiful, beautiful release. And uh in a just world every Cecil Howard film uh should get that kind of release. He's definitely Absolutely firestorm uh that and cafe flesh were probably the films that got me into uh wanting to do more film writing of course of course Sadian's in an all all other category but mike, mike has had to hear me wax poetic about, <laughs> about stephen uh i- you know like you're my student and I'm the uh master professor on that or something great stuff cecil's uh Cecil's a master, too.
3: I'd love to see beautiful DVDs of of Snake Eyes and and Scoundrels and and Firestorm. Uh, we could geek out on uh, Cecil Howard, but I strongly suspect that our host would like for us to get back to something.
5: Yes, yeah, sorry, Mike.
3: <laughs> You're fine. You're fine.
4: Well, I used a line from Working Girl during the intro to this, uh, and. I have to say that as I was watching Wanda Whoops Wall Street, when I wasn't thinking about uh, the Doris Day Rock Hudson comedies, I was thinking about Working Girl and just how that would use some of the same ideas of uh, Wanda whips Wall Street and just that whole idea of the outsider coming in. And having this strong business acumen, having this uh, terrific body, though I have to say that Veronica Hart puts Melanie Griffith to shame, even on Melanie Griffith's best day. And um in there, you get that. Woman versus woman conflict, which is very interesting because we don't have that in Wanda. Kevin, you brought that up about the the one woman who is saying, you know, just because you're a woman, I'm not going to treat you any differently. And the Sigourney Weaver character is being very vicious to the Melanie Griffith character in this in Working Girl. Uh, but I have to say that Working Girl, yeah, okay, it's a fun comedy, maybe, and I think that she uh, ends up kind of winning at the end but i have to say Wanda Whips Wall Street has a lot more meat to it and just has a lot more to think about when it comes to these this film more than um, Working Girl Working Girl is not a movie that i necessarily go back to very often if at all uh, other than to possibly look at Sigourney Weaver but uh, and then the chemistry that harrison ford allegedly has with melanie griffith just isn't there whereas i feel the chemistry it, when it comes to wanda whips wall street and uh, just to your point earlier about the, wanda whips wall street being shot in five days no rehearsals hundred thousand dollars versus this overly lavish who is a mike nichols that did working girl and just that You know, obnoxious theme song and everything. It just it was too much. It was way too much and just uh, really didn't do very much for me at all. Whereas Wanda definitely uh, kept my interest. And to your point, Heather, moved along and left me wanting more. Whereas I was pretty bored with Working Girl. You
5: know, I have a funny story about Working Girl. Uh, I saw that film way too young because <laughs> I was a, you know, you being a child of the eighties and all of a sudden the household has pay cable, you know, you're like, Hey, I'm going to, Oh, there's an R rated film and everybody's out or they're asleep. I'm going to see what's on and working girl came on. And I was, you know, I was like, Oh, I'll watch this. And the film like somehow disturbed me and bored me. I don't know how anything could knock up. Cause like I, I, I found it unpleasant. And boring. And that Carly Simon song is terrible. That song, as, as much as I, I, I mean, I didn't care for most of the music in Wanda, though I love the film. The People's Court theme, that Carly Simon song makes that sound like, I don't know, Neil Young's Harvest or something. I don't know. It's it's terrible. I just, oh, yeah, I was not a fan of Working Girls. Not the Lizzie Borden film. Lizzie Borden's cool. But oh, yeah, I'm not. A big movie. Yeah. yeah, but the Melanie Griffith, and she was terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I just did not. I didn't realize how much like di- <laughs> just just like disgust I had for this film, Mike, until you brought it up. It's yeah. like it's like the floodgate.
3: <laughs> well, while we're on the uh, uh, Melanie Griffith uh, hater train, uh, <laughs> I and and I think she's a, I think she's a wonderful actor and she's done amazing work in in a number of films. But one of the one of the great lost should have been made films was Brian De Palma's body double with Annette Haven playing the role that went to Melanie Griffith. And 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 De Palma said in uh, a book that came out shortly after, a year or two after the film, that when it came down to it, the audition, the screen test between Melanie and Annette, uh, there was really no comparison. That he just kind of had to go with 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 Melanie, and I just don't believe that for a second. I don't. Uh, Annette Haven is a much much better actor than than, and certainly was at that time. Uh, you know, the the early eighties was not a golden age for you know female Hollywood film acting, and I think, I mean, to this day, I'm pretty sure that someone at the studio, or possibly a theater chain, or or you know someone. Uh, with their uh, thumb on the, the the money artery, took um took to Palma's side and said, "No, we're not going to have the you know, we're not going to have the porno chick in a in a major Hollywood film because I just I cannot imagine how much better Annette would have been than than Melanie was in that film. I just don't I, it's, I just can't even imagine what it would be like to have that film to watch now with Annette Haven in the in the lead role and explicit sex in it. Both of which were the reasons that this idea for the movie came about. So, um, it's certainly true, uh, those out there in podcast land, all you folks, uh, that the level of, of technical and, and artistic and acting skill that's on display in films like, uh, Wanda whips, Wall Street, it's, it's at least the equal of the stuff that Hollywood can do. And I would argue that, that a Hollywood uh, cast and crew uh, and and post production team would just come completely unglued if they had to put together a feature film with the resources that that Larry and uh, and his people and Veronica Hart were working with here. I just I, I think these guys are better than most of the Hollywood filmmakers, just straight up.
4: If I could get an interview with Annette Haven, I would do a body double episode because I really like that movie. But I really want to get the scoop from her on everything that happened beforehand.
3: Uh, maybe that'll happen someday. That's uh, that would be that would be really, really cool. Uh, I know she's working on she's working on her memoir. So, uh, you know, that's one of the one of the things that um, uh, you know one of the reasons that she's not as forthcoming in interviews and stuff uh, as as some other performers from that time is she's she's you know hard at work uh, on a highly detailed website and, and on her, her memoirs. And, you know, so that's something that she would like to control. Uh, and always had a wonderful level of control over her career and, uh, sort of being in charge of how information comes out and when and sort of who, uh, shepherds it into the world and, and, and who actually uh, gets paid for it. Uh, you know, and that's just spot on with all that stuff. All
4: right. We are going to take another break and we're going to play a preview for next week's show.
1: Eighteen years in the business, and who can hold a candle? You've got everything you want.
5: No, I don't. I want a baby. I'm going to adopt one.
0: Christina! Come on, Tina.
4: right we'll be back next week with a special for mother's day it is the one the only mommy dearest where we'll be joined by mr joshua grinnell aka peaches christ also terry frost the founder of paleo cinema podcast it is going to be too good to miss but until then, Heather, what is the latest with you?
5: My website, Mondo Heather, is finally Mondo updated. Uh, you can read my piece on Emilio Diarra's, and I hope to God I'm saying everything right. Everybody, my Spanish is uh, usually no bueno, but uh, it's uh, his great 1967 film, Placio Sangriento, a.k.a. Feast of Flesh, as well as guest writer Martin Billheimer's Radio City and the Recording Angel. And you can see all of that on MondoHeather.com.
3: Very cool. And how are things happening with you, Kevin? Oh, life is so great. Thank you for asking. This month or next, Vinegar Syndrome is going to come out with the first DVD in a series of restored releases from the husband and wife porn producing and directing team, Ed and Summer Brown. And that film is China Girl from 1974. And I'm on one of the extras uh, interviewing Annette Haven about uh, her uh, decision to get into X biz and uh and the shooting of the film and stuff like that. So that's, that's pretty cool. And I'm still hard at work on my book from Beavis and Budhead to tea party nation, dumb white guy, politics and culture in America. But the problem with that book is uh, the last chapter uh, keeps getting weirder and weirder uh, with every day that I look at my newsfeed. So we'll see how that uh, goes. And I'm uh, very excited to be teaching my uh, porno class again in the spring semester. And I'm looking to uh, bring a couple of guests in from both uh, the old days period that we're discussing today and then uh, more contemporary uh, directors and performers. So that's all looking great. And I have two blogs that we will link to uh, on the, on the show notes or on the, uh, on your side.
4: Thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's show and where you can find out those links over to Kevin's blog, over to Heather's site, and you also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I am not running late. Every donation and every rating helps Projection Booth take over the world.